Hi everyone. In this episode, we spoke to Emma Slade. Emma has had an absolutely amazing life story, in which after she was taken hostage at gunpoint during her high-flying banking career, she embarked upon a journey that took her to being an ordained nun in Bhutan. Emma has also set up the brilliant Opening Your Heart to Bhutan charity, and we talk about all of this in the episode. As ever, if you enjoy the episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi Emma, how are you? Oh yeah, fine, fine. So to start, we always ask what your what your relationship to mental health looks like. My own mental health. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I think it's um, it's pretty good, to be honest. I think I feel pretty pretty uh, lucky to have got to a place in my life where I can say that very genuinely. Have you always found that that's the case, or have you had had ups and downs with it? Um, no, I think you know as you live a human life over the years you're likely to encounter times when your mind is more of a confusing place or somewhere which is hard to live with and uh, I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder after being held at gunpoint and I think that really was um, a very profound experience for me and showed me how crucial the state of your mind is in terms of what it feels to be you and how it is uh, affects the quality of your life, the whole quality of your experience. So that was definitely a time of difficulty with my own mind, but I've obviously done lots of training and uh, practices since then, which have enabled me to get a very happy relationship with my own mind would you kind of say that 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 really not very nice experience was a bit of a catalyst for changes in your life in general or do you think do you think the way your life has gone subsequently would have eventually happened anyway oh no it was definitely a massive catalyst yeah without any doubt um, obviously, I wouldn't have wished it to have happened. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I now feel, you know, very grateful in a way that it happened, which sounds a very strange thing to say. But I do think it forced me to really ask some questions about what kind of life I wanted to lead and what kind of person I wanted to be. And... Uh, it did change my attitudes to a lot of things in the end. I did have to get, um, you know, I did have to recover from the post-traumatic stress disorder, which is no small thing. I had to do that first. In terms of whether I would always have ultimately entered a path of service of spiritual inquiry, I think it was there, but I think the attractions of the material world and uh, my intellectual drive may have kept me on a more obvious career path for longer if this incident hadn't happened. I think maybe a bit of background on um, 
what kind of career you're mm. in when, when this happened and what, what your life kind of looked like before um, before that incident uh, happened might be beneficial. Okay, sure, yeah. So I was a senior financial analyst uh, for a big global bank working in Hong Kong and I very much enjoyed my job. I was very intellectually stimulating. It felt quite important because we're dealing with large sums of money. In the financial markets, there's a great sense of uh, that you're sort of at the edge of what's being created. It's, a, it's, a, it's full of change, constant change, and it's quite an exciting place to be. So intellectually, I felt very, very uh, fulfilled in, in that role. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't kind of judge people who have that sort of career. I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. It was just something that fulfilled a part of me, but only a small part of me. And in the years since then, obviously, I've explored what I feel are more essential and deeper aspects of, of who I am as a human being. I'm very grateful for the experience that I had, but I'm also grateful that it didn't occupy the whole of my human life. So, so do you think you, did you realise that you had that different part of you that you described as a human being when you were working in that? Or was it only kind of subsequently that, that you discovered that there was even that part of you that existed? I think early on as a child and as a teenager, I was quite drawn to spiritual things like any pictures of a Buddha or statues of a Buddha. I was always very interested in Asia. I mean, I was ended up in Hong Kong, you know, even with my job. So I think when I was younger, I had a clearer idea of it. But I think various life events happen, like you get very involved with passing exams and going to university and then trying to make your way in the world. And I very much put those underlying interests to the back of my mind, I think. So, yeah, do you think that's something that we just thinking about that do you think that's something that that we get slightly wrong in in um well i can only speak for for british society that we that we put so much focus on exams going to university getting a job that we lose that ability to explore different parts of who we are and that actually we might lose the ability to find something that we are really good at that's not necessarily a conventional route um, I'm always wary when we start to talk about uh, forms of living as wrong because I learned a lot from doing exams from being university and having a proper job in the world e every experience we have we can learn a lot from can many good things can come out of it and so I don't think those stages or those experiences were wrong I'm just pleased that I didn't get completely stuck in them for too long. I think when I look back at my life, there's been different phases, whether it's exams, university, you know, career, maybe looking at relationships. Um, and I, I just think they all have merit. They all have wisdom in them. They all have a chance to grow in them. Um, but it's just to keep on growing and not feel that you're somehow trapped or stuck in a particular mode of operation that you're in does that make sense yeah absolutely okay um so how did you begin there was obviously one particularly traumatic 
uh, incident but mm. something that really reading the book really struck me from that was that actually the feeling of really deep compassion that you had for mm. the the perpetrator of that incident and mm. do you think was that feeling very much the start of a of a turning point and a start to move to to more of what you what you do now and who you are now yeah actually later on when I look back at the book I thought I should have said a bit more about that actually at the time um I was incredibly taken aback by the fact that after the incident had happened there was this what felt like very spontaneous feeling of profound compassion for all of the circumstances uh, myself him uh, the people around the police in fact all of the beings that had been involved you know as if you could just see the whole inter interlinked web of people and feel sort of compassion for them I have to say that it didn't feel like something I had caused. I really didn't feel like I was being compassionate. I just felt as if this force of compassion arose. Really didn't feel like something that I had caused. So it took me back. It really surprised me because I didn't feel like I had caused it. And I really, whilst thinking I was a vaguely okay human being, I really hadn't thought that I was particularly interested in what Compassion might be, kindness might be. It wasn't a quality that I valued very highly. I, I valued being clever and knowing stuff, um, being quite sort of enthusiastic and energetic. Um, so suddenly to feel this powerful force of compassion, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, feeling so relevant to me, that was a real surprise to me, I have to say. And did that kind of lead you to start thinking about starting the journey that you went on to to become where you are now I suppose through kind of I think it was through yoga at the start and then eventually starting to visit uh, Bhutan and going back there more and then you know founding the charity and all of that I think it was uh, it definitely shifted my awareness of what was possible uh, it planted a seed, but I think it took time for it to come to fruition. So many other conditions were necessary, like meeting my teacher, like doing a lot of practice. And then eventually, eventually it came, I think, into fruition with the decision to found a charity and to dedicate a lot of my time to helping children in Bhutan. Um, you know, there was no way that moment in Jakarta after the incident had happened and I felt that compassion. I didn't think it would lead to anything. It was just for a moment how my mind or my heart felt but I you know I didn't imagine it was going to go anywhere and it did take a lot of other things to come to the point where I actually wanted to you know feel I wanted to totally put that into action um, so it took some time but certainly that was the the seed yeah so and then on your first visit to Bhutan you met forgive me I've completely forgotten uh Lama, Lama. the monk's name yeah um, yeah Nima okay. and yeah that kind of started a, a, a really well I suppose beautiful relationship that that changed your life mm. further I suppose and and so what I suppose how did that come how did that come about in the first place 
how did that relationship with him evolve and move and how do you kind of split your time between the UK and Bhutan? Hmm. So yeah, it's a very beautiful relationship. It's also a hilarious relationship because you have to imagine here you have a fairly energetic, outspoken Western woman and, and there you have a fairly straight-talking uh, lama, so in robes, living nearly 3,000 metres altitude in the Himalayas, has never been to the West, uh, has probably not had much experience of women even, to be frank. You know, uh, many male monastics have been monastics for a lot of their life also aren't very <laughs> well-versed on the other gender, you know. So I think it was beautiful, but it was also kind of hilarious at points, a bit like two worlds looking at each other and putting their head on one side and going, huh, you know, what's that? So I think we have to recognise that was part of it too. Obviously meeting him in uh, October 2011 at Dr. in the Himalayas, um, yeah, who knows why that happened. I can't say kind of why it happened. I stumbled across him and it was just very clear that uh, there just this strong feeling that I could listen to him forever and somehow there was some very strong kind of rope between us and uh, you know not not long after a few weeks after I returned to Bhutan to seek to find him and luckily that uh, was possible and that's uh, on the 1st of January very early in the morning on the 1st of January 2012 he uh, taught me the compassion text which was my kind of uh, specialist text i suppose and then he formally he formally took me on as his student and um that was it felt really really extraordinary and um yeah it's really a life-changing thing and i think for anybody who deeply inquires into what it is to be human you know the value of the teacher you know the value of somebody that you trust that recognizes the best in you and encourages you to really flourish as a human and that's really what Lama did for me and uh, I'll be forever grateful. Yeah and it eventually led to you um, becoming ordained can you kind of talk us through a little bit about what that what that process looked like and how hard it is? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I, I didn't realize at the time, I'm going to say, I'm so, I'm so naive, but I really didn't realize at the time that no Western woman had been ordained in Bhutan. So I really didn't realize the gravity of what was going on. Um, but I was given that opportunity. So in this huge monastic called Azong in Punaka, the ancient capital of Bhutan, I was given the opportunity to be formally ordained, which means to live under vows. So there was a long ceremony all in Tibetan and it's very magical and uh, incredible, really. And so since, I mean, I'd already been living under vows for two years before that happened. They tend to wait a while um, before formally ordaining anybody just to make sure that it's the right thing for them. And yeah, so obviously that was a huge turning point in my life if you can imagine having been born in England and you know, <laughs> grown up in the West etc 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 and to be 
the ancient capital of Bhutan, being ordained as a as a Buddhist nun in a very sort of sacred ceremony. It was quite, yeah, it's a day I'll never forget, as you can imagine. And since then, obviously, I've spent a lot of time in Bhutan. I founded the charity. I've written the book. And I've done a lot of practice under the guidance of Lama. And now my teacher is actually the person who ordained me in Bhutan. So after about four or five years of intensive practice with Lama, he um, recommended that this other person become my teacher. And he is now my meditation teacher, the person who actually ordained me. And, uh, you know, it's a credible, incredible opportunity because to have a clear path, a good teacher and a reliable teacher and a clear path um, of instruction is just so important. And you can't really find it in books. You know, there's nothing like being taught one-to-one -one a great meditation master. I mean, I can't uh, explain to you just how wonderful that is as an opportunity and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, I, I want to talk about Bhutan in general and the charity mm -hmm. in, a, in a sec but right. one, one thing I really wanted to ask was how um, whether it's unusual um, for women who have children to be ordained but also mm, yeah I think it's this was the why I was really surprised I mean it, it wasn't my idea none of this was my idea this is Lama telling me what to do you know and I had never thought that I would be ordained because I'd already had a child. I hadn't been married, but I had had a, a child. Um, but actually it's um, considered quite uh, possible, but not very usual. Uh, so, but because he told me that this was what I should do with my life, then obviously I did it. And, um, so, yeah, it has meant that I bring a lot to my teachings as a nun and to my practice because I bring the reality of having been in the working world and I bring the reality of what it is to have a child and the responsibility and the feelings that come with that. And so I hope I bring a lot to the um, apparently, you know, esoteric practices of meditation and retreat and lamas and Bhutan, etc. It can sound really like uh, another world. But I think many of my other experiences really make me want the teachings and the practices to be practical and helpful for people who are not um, living that kind of esoteric life. And your son seems to really, I don't know if thrive is the right word, be when I was reading the book he seems to describe mm. you as you know the happiest mum in the in the by the school gates and things but how hard was it to to do the the training when you're mm. back in the UK but also mm. when you are um when you are yeah. like the primary care for some for somebody yeah. else yeah, I think my my son, he's 14 today. This oh, is wow. actually his birthday today. Happy birthday. Yeah. So he's 14 today. He's now 5 foot 11. And he has gone from being very proud of his mum uh, uh, to being quite embarrassed about his mum and then back into a sort of middle zone, you know. So I think if you really inquire with him, yeah, he's still very proud of, of what I've done. and uh, But he probably, you'd have to deep, dig quite deep to get that out of him but uh ultimately i think he um 
he knows that there's a lot of greed in the world and he knows that I'm trying not to live a, a life of greed and with the charity, uh, I think he understands a lot of that. So hopefully it's been a good role model, you know, for him. And uh, yeah, it has been hard at points, but I've had to be very determined, very, very determined. Um, in the practices that I did in the beginning, it was a little bit easier because I was doing many hours of practice every day. So when he went to school, I practice a lot, etc. And um, it's become a little bit more um, multifaceted since the book came out and the charity and then teaching more and people wanting to talk, etc. So my life is quite multifaceted now. Back in the days when I was doing intensive practice for those sort of four years, it was a little bit easier. I just had to bring him up and then do a lot of practice. Now I, I, I really have to have a very strong and resilient mind because there's actually a lot more going on than just, you know, than just that. You ha if you want to be a practitioner, uh, a committed practitioner, you are going to have to be determined because there will be a million things that will appear to be more interesting than doing practice, like, you know, even like, you know, ironing or, I don't know, chatting to somebody or... And there will be a million things that can distract you from having a regular practice. So I think we all find that, me too. This is where having a teacher that you feel a profound connection with is so helpful because it keeps you on the path. Let's, if we can, let's, let's talk about Bhutan now and the charity and why is it First of all, I suppose, what drew you to it and why is it such a special place for you? I'd always wanted to visit Bhutan, actually. Even from a young child, I'd spoken of it, if you ask my mum. So if you remember from the book, at one point, my mum says, oh, please just go to this country. I'm so sick of hearing about it. Just go there, you know. Uh, so there was that. But I think that ultimately it was the place I found my teacher. That was the thing. I love Bhutan dearly. Being there is incredibly magical and special for me. But ultimately, it was the place I found my teacher. And that is why it remained so sacred for me. What was it that led you to move from kind of merely being, um, well, I suppose not merely, but, you know, visiting it uh, for yourself, I suppose, to visiting it to help others and... Um, and, and form the charity? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I was, again, I don't know, kindness and compassion, they just seem to surprise me, you know. So I'm as surprised as anyone that I ended up setting up this charity and, you know, <laughs> really putting such a lot of time into doing it. I'm pretty much surprised I did that. But I think it's the power of practice. I think in the end, if you, if you make a lot of prayers and meditations about compassion, in the end you just end up doing it. You just do. You feel you have to. You just feel you've changed and you genuinely, you genuinely want to act kindly in the world. You realise that you are just one person and you, you have to expand beyond thinking of just one person or two people or three people. And you genuinely wish when you connect with others to be of help to them. Um, to in some way uh, 
bring something joyful into their life, whether it be a medical thing or a chance to go to school, or if it's just a smile and paying some attention and listening to them or whatever, it's you, just your mind, the way you approach a situation, I just realized it just changed, you know? And I guess, you know, for all my interest in meditation and Buddhist philosophy, I, I still didn't realize that, that that might happen. And then it sort of ended up happening. And, <laughs> and I just, it's a joy, you know, I, it's a joy to be able to help children there. And um, yeah, I find it very moving and I find it, it gives me a profound feeling of peace and integrity that I'm not just talking about helping others, but I really am trying to help others. You know, I just am and it, it makes me feel peaceful. Great. And what what exactly is it that the the charity i know it's a lot to do with um uh school and 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 healthcare um because bhutan has some fairly uh remote areas and some quite poor areas so what what's the work that the charity that the charity actually does yeah so opening your heart to bhutan that's the the uh, name of the charity it mainly helps children either with special needs or living in um challenging rural circumstances and it's three areas of interest are helping them access education access medical care and ensuring that their shelter is adequate and we've played a large role in building the first purpose-built school for special needs children in Bhutan, that's in the east near Tashigan. We've also done things like um, helped train a specialist in prosthetic limbs and we've provided prosthetic limbs for um, some children and, and young people in Bhutan. Um, we've uh, organised a lot of educational projects with uh, children with special needs and those without working together to meet each other and particularly we've done art camps around that. Um, we've built two playgrounds, we've built one sports ground, um, we've done all a host of things and at the moment we're putting clean water filter systems in four schools in Bhutan, I'd like to do some more of that and uh, yeah so we do a whole range of stuff. It, it, you know, if you look on the website under completed projects, you'll see the range of stuff that we've we've done. But just to, just to clarify, in the beginning, all I did was collect sleeping bags and I put a roof on a building in southern Bhutan. And that really was all I was thinking about doing. I never thought it would come to this level we're operating on now with the help of so many people my goodness you know thank goodness for kind people who want to give their time or you know help us um so yeah it's been amazing i have to say and you yeah i like the bit where you in, where you said you never thought you'd um once you trained once you've been ordained in things you never thought mm. you'd go back to a world where you were a, a kind of ceo <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought I was going to go into sort of this, this, you know, peaceful place, floating a foot off the ground, you know. And then it just 
I just felt I couldn't, I just couldn't, yeah. What one story I really liked was, I think it was a girl that didn't think, I think, did she have cerebral palsy? No, come. And she thought she... Yeah, now come in. Yes. Like, could, yeah. You talk, could you tell us about her and, and maybe give us an update if you still if you still have much contact with her and, and how she's getting on? Yeah, she was really the, um, the girl who I think inspired me to really push ahead with the charity. She, um, yeah... We managed to get her to Timpu to the capital, to the hospital, to get a proper diagnosis of, of uh, cerebral palsy. We got her some physiotherapy and she began to walk, which is really like a miraculous thing to see, to be honest. And then she joined the Eastern School that we'd been building and she really, really thrived there. It was amazing to see. She learned sign language because in the school you need to learn sign language to communicate with all the pupils. She learnt greater English and she learnt tailoring and she made me the most beautiful bag, which she presented to me and it was just fantastic. So she stayed in the school for, I think, two or three years and she's, uh, she's back home now and uh, she's fine and um, I, uh, she still contacts me and uh, so I'm very, uh, you know, very happy to have met her even when I think about her I feel very um, grateful to her she inspired me to do more than I maybe had thought I could do or that I wanted to do you know she expanded my sense of what was possible yeah that's amazing and I suppose zooming out a bit could you talk about Bhutan a bit more generally and, and what it's like as a place and and how they do things slightly differently. I've kind of read about the way they don't mm. use GDP. I can't remember the term they use, but it's yeah, it's yeah. more to do with. So Bhutan is um, it's the last remaining independent Himalayan kingdom. It's a democracy, but it still has a very inspiring thing. Uh, it's the last remaining Vajrayana Buddhist country, which has remained untouched by invasion or whatever. Uh, it has a population of about 700,000 and it's about the size of Switzerland. So you can see from that it's the population density is very low and the government has a law that I think it's 60% or 65% of the country has to remain indigenous forest. So you, you, you get a feeling already maybe that you feel as if humans are still very much of a small part of the landscape. Um, and a big contrast to the southeast of England, where it's incredibly developed and we're all quite close together, you know. So there's something I found very liberating about being in the mountains, the clean air, the amount of nature, the birds, and the, just that sense of the balance between human life and, and natural world is very different. And I, I find that very amazing. It is a very it is a very spiritual place. You know, you can't really distinguish Buddhism. Um, from the Bhutanese culture, they say they're very interlinked and they are. And that just gives a very special feeling to everything because the dimension of, of devotion, of compassion, of meditation, these aspects, they're not like strange things that are 
somehow just done by a couple of people or whatever, they're very much part of the culture. So you'll see temples everywhere. You'll see uh, people doing um, mantras and prayers everywhere. You And it's just that side of life or that side of a human being is really alive there. And that's something I find very inspiring. In terms of what you said about having not so much emphasis on the gross domestic product, they have this policy of gross national happiness, GNH, which was um, inspired by the previous king, the fourth king of Bhutan. And it, it has a, a vision of sort of holistic development, uh, economic, but also cultural and um, religious. And so it, it, it sort of a way of thinking about how a country develops in a very holistic way and so I think that's very um, inspiring for anybody to uh, read about. Yeah no it, it, it definitely is and especially my um, my PhD is in is in climate change and the, oh. the, the thing you said about the law to keep 60% of, of forestry seems quite a progressive um a progressive law i think it i think i might be completely wrong but i think i've read that it actually helps to keep them essentially carbon neutral because of all the emissions the the forest takes in yeah yeah that may well be the case i'm not an expert on that uh, on the climate change front bhutan is concerned about the climate change occurring on the uh, tibetan plateau and the melting of, uh, uh, raising temperatures there, which may cause a greater um, water flow down into the Bhutanese lakes and rivers, which can burst their banks and lead to flooding. So I know in the northern part of Bhutan, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been some research into the northern part of Bhutan where there are a number of lakes which could uh, be affected by climate change. So it is something you hear about in Bhutan. Yeah. And the way we we kind of like to wrap things up is by asking what you do to kind of safeguard your own mental health. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, there will be formal practice for sure, but there'll also be very simple things. I think that, especially I'm quite busy now with lots of different things going on, right? I just know from my own experience that I need to take time to do peaceful and simple things if I'm going to kind of be happy and be at my best. And that may be meditation practice, but it may also be uh, walking around a garden and uh, snipping a few, you know, sort of plants back or something like that. I also, as you know from the book, I'm a big fan of being absorbed in a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, I like being with animals and, and stroking cats and dogs and being friendly to them. So yeah, I have formal meditation practice, but I also have a lot of very simple kind of, just simple little things that I do, which help me feel calm and in a kind space. And they're not, you know, they don't require me to be speaking Tibetan and doing all kinds of crazy things. But without them, my life can get, and feel a bit, not just a bit jam-packed. I need these kind of moments of quiet, kind, pauses in the day and then then I can do a lot actually but if it all gets jammed up together then 
don't enjoy my life so much i'll be honest yeah and the last thing we ask is how can we find out more about what you do and and opening your heart to Bhutan? well the charity has a website which um is largely done by volunteers <laughs> so it's usually fairly up to date but let's hope so the charity has a website open your heart to Bhutan. Uh, obviously you can read the book set free and that's on audible and it's in a few different languages as well which is wonderful and um, you can contact me on facebook under emma slade and you can join some teachings if you wish to and uh, i try to answer well i do answer every email sent to me personally i don't have a secretary that does it so if you email me i will answer you myself Brilliant, Emma, that's been fascinating and and say happy birthday to to Oscar. (laughs) Thank you, yeah, thank you very much. Hi everyone, just a quick note to say that although the things I talked about with Emma we may find helpful, we're not trained health professionals. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or NHS service or a charity like MIND on 0300 123 3393